In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. They include Hall of Fame athletes, Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Super Bowl champions, Emmy winners, award-winning authors, award-winning film score composers, directors, trailblazers, pioneers, and vendors, the variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. My next guest is an actor, director, and martial artist. His filmography includes The Bourne Ultimatum, The Underrated Snow White in the Huntsman, and the absolutely fantastic The Old Guard, currently available on Netflix. Please welcome Joey Ansa. Joey, thanks again for being on the show. It's my pleasure. So, Joe, I have to. You and I were talking off air. We talk about you were. I don't think you'll mind that I share this, but but we were talking about you know the love and passion of movies and what really gets us into it, right? So if my research yeah. is right, if my research is right, yours probably starts around when your dad, who, is, who was an absolutely legendary fashion designer, um, he used to rent videos for you, come home, and you two would sit and watch, you know, the absolute classics that we both love, like anything with Arnold in it, Stallone, Bruce Lee, Van Damme. Am I close to where you started to develop this love of cinema? Yeah, I would think... Definitely. I would think, and let's throw in films like Aliens, Mm. the the kind of intrigue, because I guess you're playing with action figures as a guy and you're watching He-Man and uh, Mask, the cartoon. And um, so in terms of guys with muscles fighting and doing action and stuff, when you see the live action equivalent of that, it's exciting. And of course, you have huge inspiration. But I remember... Aliens, Aliens in particular, and the first one was something so intriguing and so out of the realm of what is in a child's mind. Mm. Not that I'm, not that I'm saying out here. I recommend every parent to screen their, you know, eight-year-old or seven-year-old Aliens. But you know, you sneak in, and you know what it was like in the eighties. Parents were a bit more chilled out with, you know what kind of ratings films were. So, so you know, you get exposed to things, things like Robocop and Alien, stuff that's quite shocking or has a very strong art concept or production design. Um, yeah, it leaves a mark on you and you become aware that there's this kind of medium, there's an art form that can suck you in and and make you want to rewatch this thing over and over, because I guess that's the big difference. There are cartoons that we're fans of, but I don't remember watching a single episode of a cartoon over and over as many times as I did certain movies that had an impact on me. So I think that rewatchability of films means you sort of download the whole DNA of the, of the production into you. And, um, then you end up doing what I do for a living. No, that's really well said, and I love the way you said it. And before we kind of go down this road, I just I like when I go on, on inst- my my guest Instagram just to get a feel for what kind of person they are. I wanted to bring up a few things for you uh, to you. Um, I didn't know that you were a gamer. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, man, hugely. Um, I mean, for any of you listeners out there that know or don't know, I have done several live action Street Fighter incarnations. It started off with a, a short YouTube film called Street Fighter Legacy that had about in total 10 million views. You can find, if you type Street Fighter Legacy on YouTube, you can see where this journey began. I loved Street Fighter the game so much that it it really broke my heart seeing what they had done with the live action movies. Because on one hand, I was a huge Ninja Turtles fan of the of the Eastman and Laird graphic novels and comic books, mm-hmm. the cartoon. And then when the first 1990 TMNT movie came out, it was incredible. So I'd almost been spoiled by such an amazing live action adaptation of uh, an IP that I enjoyed in comic format. So when the Van Damme Street Fighter came out, you're like, oh no. I mean, Mortal Kombat conversely, I think pleased, safe to say that most fans of the game were pretty pleased with the Mortal Kombat movie. Um, But Street Fighter was like, oh, and then when Legend of Chun-Li came out, I was like, something has broken inside me. And and it's now clear that the studio system is, is never going to deliver the kind of Street Fighter movie I want to see. So I set out on this almost crusade to make, to almost take on the studios, you know, and do. So after legacy, I did a, a, a feature film that was originally released on YouTube on the machinima channel as 12-minute episodes, like a web series called Street Fighter Assassin's Fist that was very successful. We made it for a budget of $3 million, and I wrote it, directed it, played Akuma in it, um, did the fight choreography. So it was a real passion project, and it found a huge, um, very loyal fan base. Um and yeah, so I won't go on too much, but yeah, gaming has been a massive uh, stimulation for my martial arts uh, devotion, and I guess it's been a big part. It started my filmmaking journey, you know, as a writer director. You know, put you know that there's an old saying, Joe. You know, put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you put your heart there, right? I mean, you really invested yourself, and there's something beautiful to be said about what you did with that franchise, right? Sure, sure. You know, um, so the other two things I wanted to ask you about, I loved your, and this is going back maybe a few months, maybe in a few years in some cases, uh, a tribute to the movie Blind Fury. Oh, I, lo- I love that as well. I thought that was a, that was a neat little post you had a couple years back. Um, uh, I forget his name, who's passed, he passed away. Yes, Rutger Hauer. There you go, yeah. And, and what, a, what an underrated, wonderful movie that was. Yeah, definitely, man. I can remember... So I, I, for listeners out there, I, I was born and raised in London until I was nine years old. And then our family emigrated to Ghana in West Africa. And that's where my father's from. So I'm half Ghanaian and half English. Um, and it was when we were, me and my brother were in Ghana that I first saw that film. And I can remember there's like a blinding flash. Isn't there some white phosphorus grenade or or bomb from a a plane goes off and blinds him and then he's taken in by um some kind of you know indigenous vietnamese tribe or laotian or cambodian tribe and is trained how to operate as a blind guy 
and then the sword work, right? Am I remembering that correctly? You are, am I re- exactly right, yes. And the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and it's more recent, but I feel like Avengers Endgame was so beautifully done. I know everyone's like, oh, no, duh. But it really, I mean, there's a lot of modern movies out that aren't as good as people are saying. You know, they're maybe a little bit inflated. I feel like mm-hmm. Avengers Endgame was not only great as a Marvel movie, but it really, I felt like it was the most emotional, maybe Dark Knight Rises, that that trilogy aside, a superhero movie ever made. Yeah, I had, now I'm, I'm almost intrigued as to why you're bringing this up. Is it because you are aware that that film absolutely gutted me in a good way emotionally or Maybe I put an Instagram post up that you read, but yeah. No, those are all, yeah, everything I just brought up, those three things are all from your Instagram page, and I was really taken back by how moved you were by the movie. That's why I bring it up. Yeah, I was just reminiscing about this with a good friend of mine just a few days ago, actually. I mean, again, I was a huge fan of of the Marvel comics, Um, so I'm coming at the MCU movie-verse already... um, already, uh, you know, versed in the lore of the Marvel world through the comics. And I kind of inherited some of my cousin's comics. So I had like Captain America comics going back to the 60s and stuff, like really vintage uh, era uh, Marvel stuff where the pages were all yellowed and stuff. Um, But the culmination of the films, you know, if you've gone on that whole journey and invested in seeing each of the of the you know, phase one, phase two, phase three films, what they did in Endgame, particularly, I mean, it all comes together, right, with, with Cap catching Milner Mm. when that happens, because it, what's so genius is that they seed it in Age of Ultron, obviously, they're all chilling, having the party at Stark, you know, Stark Towers, and they're all trying to lift the hammer, and uh, Captain does it, and it shifts a little bit, right? And you see uh, Steve Rogers almost, oh no, you see you see Thor almost raise his eyebrows as, as if to go, oh shit, did, did, <laughs> did, did, did that happen? What, what I thought just happened, did it happen? And then you kind of forget about it and you you were toyed through uh with the idea for a while that yeah steve rogers is worthy if anyone was going to be worthy enough to wield milnia it would be him but then you forget about it so it's great misdirection so that climactic fight when everyone's kind of out for the count more or less and thor's doing his thing but he's getting stormbreaker pushed into his chest by um, Thanos, and then you see Milner vibrate and suddenly fly, and your instant thing is, oh, Thor has managed to, you know, whilst being having his rib cage caved open, he's managed to, you know, control the hammer and strike Thanos. And when it strikes him, it moves beyond him, and then you see that all important shot of Thor's eyebrows raising, and you're like, no, someone else is moving it. And then when it that just the way Cap'n catches that, the physicality, you know, I can really appreciate an actor who knows how to, there's some moments where you have to do that Hollywood heroic posturing and the way he catches Milner 
you're just like it's like your insides fall out at that moment. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm getting goosebumps listening to you describe this because I know exactly what you're saying, and it's topped off. And I hope I got this right. It's topped off with your, you know, your fellow co-star um, Chris Hemsworth when he says, "I knew it." Like, like it's just such a, it's the cherry on top of the Sunday, right? It's the perfect reaction. Yeah, it's it's glorious. Like it truly is. Like if you have a dictionary definition of glorious, that is a moment that. And it's a funny thing, as as a, as a cinephile yourself, when you find yourself watching a movie, when tears are running down your face, not because what you're seeing is sad, but what you're seeing is so magnificent mm. Mm. that you're having some kind of central nervous system short circuit. <laughs> it's a really odd phenomenon it's like you could call it a religious experience almost it's like the michael jackson effect you are seeing an idol a living deity and it's a funny concept but let's take the michael jackson thing people who are the biggest fan have gone to see this guy live in concert and they've somehow got front row you know position and they faint they faint and they collapse and they have to get carried out of there and you think that is the last thing they want to do is miss the show and not see it yet they've been their nervous system has been so overwhelmed by the majesty of what they're seeing that it has to protect itself by shutting you down almost putting you into a temporary induced coma <laughs> to to stop you suffering some kind of epileptic you know damage to your brain like when you really analyze what is happening on a physiological neurological level it's it's quite incredible and films can have that effect and end game for me and my girlfriend we're watching it with and then it hits you it's not just a one-two punch he catches Milner, then he does the sickest combos with it you know right right and that, the hammer and shield combos and the lightning going across the ground and then he does the massive slam and you're like jeez he's almost doing cooler stuff with this than than thor has <laughs> and then with the whole his shield has been hacked to bits and he's the last man standing and in spite of his valiant efforts with Milner, the kind of the jig is up and then you know you can feel cap who is the kind of bastion of hope is down to his last bar of hope you know mm. and then when he hears the kind of static come over his comms and you hear uh, Falcon on your left and then you see the warm glow, even the use of light. It's such a dark, depressing, morose landscape, the color palette of where they're fighting Thanos, that suddenly injecting this warm magic hour glow has the, even that has an emotionally profound effect, you know, mm. the visuals and, you know, T'Challa coming through and it's just, it then hits you and you're just, you're completely putty in the filmmaker's hands. The tears are then just streaming almost continuously towards the end, till the end of the film at that point. Boy, do I, I love to hear, I just, I could not, I've never heard it put the way you just said, but I, I, I completely agree. And for me, that moment, and not to get too far off track, but for me, that moment was in 1994 when I saw the Shawshank Redemption, Joey. Yes. I went right to the bathroom. And I, I, I'm going to sound like an absolute wuss when I say this, but I sobbed for five. I, I could not believe what I just I, I could not believe 
that somebody crafted a movie that was that powerful. It, I was not expecting it when I saw it in the theaters. I I was just I lost my shit in a way that I can never describe again. You know, yeah, it, and it's it's wonderful to be to be open to that. The the way I started to unlock my emotions was to watch films and think I am not going to resist being moved by the film. If I feel it's starting to do something deep down in the, you know, in the, in, in the cauldron, I'm going to let it happen. I'm not going to force something, but I'm not going to resist something. And it was the last samurai that was the, the keystone film that broke the seal you know, the final charge and um, when Cruz gives the sword, uh, Katsumoto's katana, to the emperor. Mm. And it, it opened floodgates. And I, I was in the cinema crying almost continuously for about 10 minutes. And it was like, it wasn't just crying at the film, but it was all the suppressed emotion for the last decade of my life was coming out in that moment and it was deeply profound so then i was like i was then chasing down other films that would give me that experience you know randomly when i was filming the born ultimatum i was in morocco i can remember i saw the hurricane the denzel washington film about the boxer Mm. for the first time and that completely gutted me you know I was crying my eyes out at that. And um, as you said, Shawshank, Man on Fire, messed me up. Um, Ray. Um, Man on Fire. Yeah. Man on Fire was a tough, I mean, I absolutely loved it. You talk about, you're right. Talk about a movie that I almost want to bet somebody not they, that, that they can't hold it together during that movie. The ultimate sacrifice, right? Yes, completely, completely. Um and it's about, it's about, I get very, for me, if a film doesn't make you feel something on a visceral level, it hasn't succeeded. Because you could take, let's take something like Extraction mm-hmm. that came out recently. Great very movie. similar plot to Man on Fire. Yep. I would directly put them in the same, you know, barrel. Now, Extraction has some great filmmaking techniques, some phenomenal action. You know, I I could reel off all the things it did right. But from an emotional level, a character attachment level, it didn't do anywhere close to what Man on Fire did. Right. And for me personally, although the John Wick films are landmark films because... You finally got stunt coordinators, second unit directors, main uniting, and seeing action done. And they're stylish films. They're lit well. There's some cool. I don't feel anything personally, and I don't. I don't want to hate on anyone's work. Art is subjective, right? Different things move different people. But the John Wick films leave me emotionally flatlining. I'm like, if I was hooked up to some kind of heart rate monitor and hormonal, you know, like a lie detector. Um, thing that measures moisture release from your fingertips, sweat glands. I think there are certain films I flatline through and I'm like, cerebrally, my brain is thinking about the plot logically, but I'm not feeling anything. 
emotionally, and then you see something like The Dark Knight, like Shawshank, like Man on Fire, um, like Whiplash, I tell people Whiplash is a better action movie than 95% of action movies, and it's not an action film. Are you but talking the about the movie with J.K. Simmons, that Whiplash? Yeah. Yeah, great yes. movie, great movie. But do you, do you understand where I'm I coming absolutely, from? I absolutely, and I love how you're saying it, absolutely. Because that is how an action movie should make you feel. The stakes, two nemeses truly coming together and, sh- and in a showdown, in, in a, and Rocky does that. The heart that, that Rocky, particularly in Rocky Two, when he finally beats Apollo, mm. it's Whiplash is comparable. The, the the emotional journey you go on um, is similar. And I'm like, how can a film about a drummer make me feel more scared, more energized, more tense than ninety percent of the action films that, that that come out? You know. And I'm like, it's because the filmmakers are not grasping the human side of it, the human condition and, and, and those elemental themes that, that move all of us, you know? You know, but, Joe, you know what it is, too, and, and I love how you're saying this, and it's not this simple, but I think it's relationships, right? We talk about Endgame. That whole movie works because of relationships and things they built. Like, I'm, the more you talk about extraction, the more I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, he's right, because it's it works in a lot of ways. But there's just not this relationship where it's like you're emotionally vested in the movie. It's it, it works for a lot of reasons, like you said. But I think a lot of the stuff, like in Whiplash, I mean that relationship. Maybe it's an unhealthy one, but it's a relationship and it's solid, and you believe it completely, completely. And um, and and as a villain, like as. Um, J.K. Simmons is more terrifying than all the think of name one villain that you've seen recently in a film that is compelling or um, terrifying as as J.K. Simmons' character is in that. And I think a lot of films could take a leaf out of that film's book of how do you build up intimidation factor, you know? I think it's not not since Bill the Butcher in Gangs of uh, New York, where you're actually terrified. Yes. When, when Cameron Diaz and, and, and uh, Leo DiCaprio wake up in bed and Day-Lewis is sat right next to their bed with the, with the American flag draped over his shoulders, just staring at them, you almost have cardiac arrest at that moment, you know? Right, right. No, that's that's so well said because I feel like the villains, a lot of the villains that we see, you know, we're, because they wield a gun, because they've killed some people, we're all of a sudden expected to feel, oh wow, this. But we've seen that we've seen that done a thousand times before, where there's no equivalent to Bill the Butcher, there's no equivalent mm-hmm. to what J.K. Simmons did. So yeah, it's the you're right. I can't name an, a, a villain that is so authentic and fresh that we haven't seen before. I feel like it's stuff, okay, I've seen this before. This has been done before. You're right. There's That is that hasn't been done in a long time. And it's missing another villain that needs very special mention, and I talk about this film and this guy so much, is Deacon Frost in the first Blade. Good one. Played by Stephen Dorff. Good one. I think... 
that is now this is deep diving but hopefully your fan base are going to be into cinema and characterization enough to appreciate this let me let me drop some truth on you here (laughs) what is so wonderful about blade from a narrative construction point of view is your antagonist frost is fighting two battles one is internally within the vampire hierarchy he is battling for respect and control against the vampire council who are all pure bloods and he was a vampire who was turned so he's not afforded the respect of a pure blood and he feels that the vampire council are too antiquated they're not looking towards the future and it's going to be the end of them and there needs to be some kind of coup coup d'etat by him to sort of bring yeah the new wave the new sort of vision of of vampires moving forward so he's got that battle and the film uh dotes a lot of time on that struggle then he's got the second struggle blade is a real bloody thorn on our sides and he's messing up our operations and moreover i need him if i'm to unlock lamagra the blood god right Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at Blade, Blade himself has two elemental battles. One is to kill vampires, right? He's a vampire hunter and, you know, systematically take down their hierarchy. And two, he's fighting his own thirst. He's fighting the ever-growing call to give in to his vampirical savage side. So his human side and his vampire side are are in constant conflict. And even Whistler says the serum is, is not working like it used to, i.e. you are on a kind of crash course for where you're sooner or later, you're going to have to drink human blood, you know? Mm. And it's that duality. Very few films have that where the, the protagonist, the antagonist, are fighting against each other, but they're simultaneously fighting their own battles that that have nothing to do with 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 their rival, if that makes sense. Yep. And that makes that film very, very special in in terms of the hero. And and Stephen Dorff does such a good job in that film. And I love that you see vulnerability in the villain, you know? You remember that Am I allowed to swear? Absolutely, absolutely. Remember when when they meet in the park, you know, and he's got the sunblock on, and he's like, you know, uh, you know, I've come to sort of, you know, offer you a truce type thing. You know, he's like, he came to offer you a truce, and he's throwing in my fucking face. <laughs> you remember, like, <laughs> you can tell he's butt hurt because Blade is so uncompromising. He doesn't give a shit. And he's like, you're just another dead vampire. <laughs> and throwing in my fucking face. And when he's like, you're an animal, you're a fucking maniac. <laughs> and when um, Frost has got his sidekick, who keeps getting his arm chopped off by Blade throughout the film. I forget his name. Um, but one bit, he's like, oh man, no, you don't understand. This Blade's got... He's fucking dangerous, dude. He's got these mad judo throws. And remember, Frost is like, yeah, he throws you up and he catches you underneath. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Like any mention of Blade makes Frost slightly anxious. And it's really nice when you see a villain who's very powerful. But there's a human side. They're scared. They have anxiety. They're stressed. 
you know? Yeah. And not not many films do that where they show the the because it's nice. It's like the villain temporarily. You almost empathise with the villain. You feel sorry for them because the hero then almost becomes the bad guy, the dark spectre. You know. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you and I can have an entire episode about why Stephen Dorff is maybe one of the most underrated actors on the planet, Joey. Well, thank goodness for True Detective season three. Yes, and that is that's his staircase back where he deserves to be in the big time, you know, doing big things. Well said. Well said. And you know, while you were speaking, I'm like, I, I was trying to come up with names of original people. I can only come up with a few. Heath Ledger goes without mention, right? Very original. Um, for how, sure. How about the villain in No Country for Old Men? Um, yeah. He is... Um, Anton something. I can't remember the last name. It was Anton... Uh, but it, I thought it was an original, like, you, you talk about being terrified in a movie. You know, feeling mm. terrified watching it. You know? You, you, you don't, aren't you talking about Javier Bardem? That's it. No, that's it. You oh, said yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, he's goddamn terrifying. When he goes in, into the store and is like, what does he say? Like, are you a betting man? Right. Doesn't he do a, a coin toss with the, the store clerk who's, who's not done anything wrong? You're Nothing. Like, why, yeah. why are you going after this dude? And his weapon of choice is terrifying. And I would even throw in, in, in separate movies, Agent, Agent Smith from The Matrix and Han, yeah. Hans Landa from um, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Glorious Bastards, completely. But a no, you're right. Villain, a delicious villain. He goes into the delicious category. Oh, when he's talking to that farmer about his daughters and he's drinking milk like he's his best friend, and you know his intentions. Oh my god! Like you're right. Where where is the originality of these characters? Like these are unique, but we don't. These are like far and few between guys. You know what I'm saying, Joey? Like we don't see that a lot. Yeah, no, completely, completely. You know, yeah, and and not getting too far off here, but I did want to ask you this, too. So, I I know, when I was a kid, and and I'm sure, I'm older than you, but we used to always, you know, the legends that got you loving movies like Stallone and all these guys, um, Van Damme, as a kid, we used to always, not knowing any better, we were like, you know, Seagal could take Tyson or Mike Tyson. We used to have these, like, (laughs) conversations, you know, who could beat who up? Um, I don't know, I feel like looking back, no, I feel like when I see... The un- like a guy like Jackie Chan who's so underrated and underappreciated, um, I feel like. I mean, uh, not by everybody, but I-, I look at a guy like that. But then I look at a guy like Steven Seagal that we may have overrated greatly. And I'm not trying to crap on Steven Seagal, but I don't know. I just feel like you're a martial arts expert. We're going to get into that in a moment. What's your take on those guys? Who's the guy that really impressed you the most that you were like – I mean, Bruce Lee aside, I mean, I think we can all agree on that. (laughs) (laughs) But is there a guy that you, like, when you look back, you're like, God, I I think he's so much better than I initially gave him credit for? Hmm. That's a good question. Different, it's appreciating what each of them had, what their USP is and was. Seagal seems like a pretty unpleasant person and his reputation precedes him. However, I think for me, the pinnacle out for justice, the whole bar scene, anybody seen, (laughs) anybody seen Rico or whatever? Anybody know who did Bobby Lupo and, and the whole, that whole scene in terms of a guy going into a gangster bar 
and intimidating the shit out of everyone in there and bullying them. There's almost no scene like that. That stands alone. You know the scene I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Just the... Even him shaking down and intimidating the poor barman. It's like, I see a lot of boxing memorabilia over here. Who's the boxer? You the boxer? Yeah. (laughs) You a tough guy? Yeah. What could you do? (laughs) I love that question. What could you do? (laughs) It's it's great. It's great. that and, And when you look at a scene like that, Van Damme couldn't have pulled that off. Jackie couldn't pull that off. Do, yeah, there's just, it's just like... Well, that's true, appreciate. yeah. They couldn't, because Seagal is a goddamn walking roadblock. I mean, at that time, he must be, what, 6'6", six, 6'7"? Six, six, You're right, big guy. Big guy with those sort of sunken beady eyes and that heavy brow and the slip back, you know. He just had a kind of... His peak, his charisma and aura swag was at max at that point, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the Aikido, the way he moved in that time, in terms of the Aikido, he brought something fresh from all the striking we were used to seeing, this, you know, all the joint locks, joint manipulations, and and painful-looking wrecks. I mean, as you know, Seagal is famous for hurting quite a lot of stunt guys. Um that gave him bad rep. And that's why some of the shit looks so painful. The right. Seagal does, because he is genuinely. So stories would be like in rehearsals, he's doing an outside wrist lock and he will let it for, for anyone who, anyone who's listening, who does BJJ or has done any kind of grappling, uh, joint manipulation art, You'll know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, for example, when you see an Aikido demonstration and they put a wrist lock on someone, they the person th- who's being thrown seemingly throws themselves to do a half somersault to unwind their twisted wrist to stop it breaking. And then you do a break fall. When you see someone hit the ground and seemingly slap the ground with their, the length of their arm, that dissipates the impact of your body hitting the floor and stops you being winded. Now, if you throw someone and you're being kind, you'll release pressure off the lock before they hit the ground that allows them to break fall. But if you want to be really savage or you're in a genuine combat situation, you want to do the wrist lock, but drop your body weight. So you're driving the mass of your opponent through the floor. Right. And then no matter how much you try and break floor, break fall, you are still being slammed through the floor. And from what I hear from stunt guys, even Chad Stahelski, who directs um, John Wick, he he was a stunt guy back then. And I hear he got, I think, his collarbone, his collarbone bust. Because in rehearsals, Seagal will let the, the lock off at the right time. But during a take, he'll drive you into the ground. So you cannot protect yourself and break fall. And you end up just getting broken, you know? Right. And there's this famous urban legend that Gene LaBelle was stunt coordinating one of these films. And when he saw that Seagal had bust up um, one of the stunt guys, he went and choked him out. Wow. I have not heard that story. Yeah, you could Google it afterwards. I'm sure you'll find several uh, sources and anecdotal reports about that. 
But yes, yeah, Seagal had his thing. He's just no-nonsense brutal and intimidating. Alpha, alpha, right? Right. Van Damme, as he, in his own words, said he, may, he was the first person to make martial arts sexy. He had the clean lines, ballet background. He brought a aesthetic to martial arts that made you, in the same way that you would look at a poster of a Lamborghini or a Ferrari and those lines of the design of the car, you take a freeze frame of Van Damme doing the jump splits or a sidekick, you're like, that's a beautiful form, you know? He's got a great physique. He was a bodybuilder. He's got a good tan. He's oiled up. And his lines are clean. Foot positions are clean. You compare someone like Chuck Norris to Van Damme, you'll see a difference in aesthetic, in attention to to detail, you know? Um, so, so is 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 Van Damme legit? Not Van Damme. Is um, Seagal? Would you would you say he's not as so much as an actor, but as a martial artist? Would you say he was very legitimate? He's a legit Aikido guy for sure. Right. I mean, then you you can have a question about well, how how useful or real is Aikido? But you could go through every martial art and 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 weigh up in MMA, in the sort of crucible of MMA, where things get pressure tested for real, how useful is Aikido in the real world? On someone untrained, for sure, you can make joint locks and wrist locks work, but against a trained fighter. But yes, I would say he he lived in Japan and he is a legit Aikido black belt. No question. I mean, it doesn't need to be debated. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think because I think now it becomes a little cheesy because now you see on YouTube, there's like he's I think he either lived in Russia or he's there a lot where you see like he's sparring with these guys. And, he, you know, the guys are pretty much rolling yeah. around. Yeah, it's it, it's taken a new cheesiness factor to it. But no, it's good to hear that because, you know, you're obviously and we're going to get to this in a second, how established you are in the martial arts. Um, but yeah, it's good to hear that he, he was very legitimate, but you got to wonder about the ethics of somebody who really, when the camera rolls, they step it up a level where, to the point where, you know, you're putting people's safety at risk and I don't, that's tough to, that's tough to stomach. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I guess there's a maliciousness and power can corrupt and, you know, it says something about your, but then again, you could raise the question at Tony Jar, who flying needs people in the head and kicks people in the, I mean, no one hits people harder for real in action cinema than Tony Jaa, you know? Mm. Now, Tony Jaa is a lovely dude by all accounts, but the stunt guys are willing to sacrifice and take the wreck and they're trying to do something new. And, and when Ong Back came out, you were like, Jesus Christ, these people are being smashed up, you know? full on full contact kicks or knees to the head or chest in a way that you just hadn't seen before i mean you know what i'm talking about absolutely absolutely and it it got me thinking of a movie oh what was it um mentioning his name just got me thinking uh uh, uh redemption um what's that movie that the, the raid the yes raid. you talk yeah. about action movies holy cow yeah, and there's a lot of brutal wrecks in that. I mean, the raid was sublime um, when that um, when that when that came out. It was a real like okay, you you get these kind of seismic shifts 
um, in in action cinema. And that was one of them where you're like, okay, we are witnessing something new here. Right. And it's a lot of this is down to Eco Uwais, the star of that film, and um, the rest of his, t- his team, the rest of the actors, um, and Silat bringing that Indonesian style to screen. But Gareth Evans, I really respect, is a sort of a master filmmaker. I mean, Gangs of London, if you haven't seen it yet, you are in for an absolute treat, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, and this will be the last thing I say because I do want to get into your unbelievable life here. Um, you got me thinking of bar scenes because you were talking about um, Seagal earlier. It got me thinking, yeah. I don't know why, of a, I don't know if you've ever seen a Bronx tale where he tells the bikers, you know, leave. Now he says, well, now you can't leave, you know, and they close <laughs> the door. You talk about frightening bar scenes. My mind is jumpy today, but you got me thinking about frightening bar scenes when you were talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but I have to say, man, I'm looking at your life here, and it's an amazing life, right? Because you mentioned how you moved to Ghana. You know, that that's kind of where you enhance your love of cinema, certainly martial arts, hip-hop, you know, taekwondo. I mean, you have a lot going on here. And your life is the ultimate, Joey, your life is the ultimate for me on what people should try to aspire to. In other words, if I pick up the little things that you've done in your life, it's almost like a recipe, right? He's got a little of this, he's got a little of this. And together, when you put it together, it makes for one hell of a final product, right? Like everything you've experienced, I don't know, I look at your life and you've done a little of this and a little of that. Like that's stuff that you can't teach, right? That's just a lifetime Mm. full of experiences. And I think all of that has served you so well and made you the person you're, not that you need me to tell you this, but it's just amazing how it kind of clicked for me like that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's, and it's the, so I want to zero in on something you said there that actually ties into Jackie Chan, who you mentioned. I remember reading his book, Jackie Chan, my story, which is a great autobiography to read. He, and I'll be brief, he went to a Peking opera school, which is the traditional form of of kind of, uh, you know, Chinese theatre, where the performers had to do, be able to sing, dance, tumble, like gymnastic tumble, use weapons, uh, act. And that's where all of Jackie's skills that you see, the sort of kung fu comedy, acrobatic comedy, all comes from the Peking opera training. And Samo Hung trained at the same school with him, Yun Biao, there's a couple of guys um, that all were brothers from that same era of of a dying art form, Peking Opera is, is like a dying art form, and they were some of the last sort of full-time practitioners signed up for 10 years under a kind of maniacal um, master that that was so horrific that they th- they plotted to assassinate him at times. Anyhow, during Jackie's time there, he says, I wasn't the best fighter. That was Samo Hung. I wasn't the best tumbler. That was Yun Biao. I wasn't the best singer. I wasn't the best, but I was good at all of them. Mm. And the irony being that Jackie didn't excel in any one of those things. He wasn't the very best. But because he was good at all of those things, he could put that together into a package and ultimately has become more successful than either of his 
famous brothers who also graduated from that place. Do you see what I mean? And I that do. really struck a chord with me reading that young is that strive to be the best. But if you're someone that, that does dedicate themselves to quite a lot of things, you may not be able to be number one because often to be number one in a specific field, you have to dedicate all of yourself to that one thing. Um, yeah. Right? And, and yeah, I totally agree. And there's one thing I feel like, and, and I'm sure you agree with this as well. I almost feel like, I don't want to sound cheesy here, but like he has a will, Jackie Chan, this is, I find it's very comparable to what you have, a will and a drive and an effort level that is beyond compare, right? So you mentioned all those other things he's good at. And then kind of like the supplemental thing is this guy really wants it. Like if he wants it, his determination level is through the roof, Mm. right? Would you agree with that, Joey? Yeah. And I think you will, your will can be forged, and it's very interesting, the concept of what makes someone determined, what, some, what makes someone not a quitter, what makes someone um, so, what makes someone so, I guess, um, filled with self-belief that they can take on mountains or beasts to the point that other people think you're crazy or you're deluded or you're arrogant. And it comes down to um, consolidating wins. So think a good analogy is imagine you have a treasure chest, right? And initially it's empty. And whatever your first significant achievement is in life, you may win sports day or you may have, um, I don't know, built something or you know you you got the girlfriend you really wanted or the boyfriend you really wanted or some milestone achievement in your life where where the odds were potentially stacked against you to achieve that thing right you have a metaphorical trophy put that trophy in that treasure chest now you have one item in there Daily, look at that item and remind yourself, I achieved this against the odds. So if I can achieve this, let me use that energy to believe I can achieve something else where the odds are stacked against me. Gradually, you start to accrue more and more trophies and you stuff them into this chest. So now eventually, every time you look in the chest, you're like, there's just reminders of how much you can achieve. And it, and it should be. It should compound and compound until you have your comfort zone is so huge. You're like, there is nothing that I cannot achieve that I set my mind to. But there is a finite amount of time and resources. So then it becomes a question of what do I want to dedicate my resources to doing? Because you cannot do everything at the same time and beat the odds. Right. Right. But that's very important. Some people, they're very high achievers, but they've got very low self-esteem and self-belief. And I'm like, none of the wins you're achieving are seemingly bolstering your sense of accomplishment or your ability to accomplish, you know? Right. It's a, there's a funny question. A very good friend of mine, who I'm still friends with today, who I went to school with. So I've known him since I was sort of 14, 15. So for a lot of people growing up i was this guy that was obsessed with martial arts and then obsessed with like martial arts tricking and gymnastics and doing flips and stuff 
And so uh, I first thought I'm going to be a stuntman. And I did Batman Begins was the first big studio film I was on as a, as a sort of junior stunt guy, as one of the ninjas uh, in the League of Shadows where Batman trains in the mountains and stuff, right? That was a turning point where I suddenly realized I've got it wrong. I don't want to be a stunt guy. I want to be an actor who can do his own stunts. And you know what? We had spent months rehearsing. There was all this cool ninja stuff that we were going to all move in formations and do this big kata together. And some of us were going to run and do these flips. And, and it was going to be much more ninjury than you saw in the final film, right? Mm-hmm. But filmmaking is long and boring. You know? Right. The reality of being on a film set. So suddenly the hype of being a ninja had died off and you're spending most of the time standing in rank and file. Now it was the scene. We got to the scene where Christian Bale, it's like the end of his training. And remember, um, Ducard, Liam Neeson's character says, right, there's this prisoner and we need you to execute him. Right. Do you remember? And, yes. and, and Bale's like, what, what was his crime? And they say, Oh, he did X, Y, and Z. And Bale's like, I'm no executioner. <laughs> Do <you remember laughs> yes, it? yes. Yeah. And, so that scene was playing out and I was, I was in the front or second from the front row of ninja. So they were right close. So I was listening and I felt goosebumps come up on the back of my neck just from the, the scene, the dialogue, the performance that Neeson and Bale were doing in front of me. I was like, wow, this is giving me the tingles. And I'm like, that's that feeling. That's that feeling I felt when I watched Rocky when I was a kid or when I watched whatever it was. And here I am. And it's acting. It's not action that's making me feel it. It's character. It's conflict through character. And then, and ultimately that leads to action. And you flip the coin. It's character through action. And any good action scene that means something to you is because you care about the stakes of the characters. You don't actually care at two people just throwing cool moves and kicks and punches at each other. It's the stakes underpinning. What do we learn about this character through the way they fight, through what they do in the action scene? And that's, um, a, enjoy, and that's amazing, too, because you're already this. I mean, Batman Begins, for my money, I mean, God, it's it's one of the best movies ever made, certainly in the superhero uh, mm. universe. But I have to say, you know, here you are, this big movie fan, right? And you legitimately – we talk about having a front row seat for an event. You are right there watching two of the best actors in the world go back and forth in this epic movie. And I know you're saying, you know, the process of putting it together can be tedious. But you use that opportunity to say, you know what? I'm on the wrong side of this. I, I You know, I want to be the guy doing what these two are doing because just – I mean your passion of movies alone – but then when you're watching it unfold, I mean, that's that's a level that none of us have ever seen in person. Yeah, it's mad. And, and, and you're watching Nolan work. To, I feel so privileged to have seen before Nolan became the bona fide deity of filmmaking institution that we know him to be today. Because think back then, Batman Begins, there was no Inception yet. There was no prestige. There was none of the, you know no dark night yet. So he was just, you know, he had done memento. He had done, ins- done insomnia. And here we are, at, I believe film number three, right? Right. Uh, 
and just watching his method that massively inspired me I think to also become a filmmaker down the line and I remember his his producing partner and wife Emma Thomas was super sweet and had time and I would ask could ask her questions and I barely knew who or what a producer was at that time you know I was 19 and she took the time to explain things and Wally Fister the DOP I remember seeing him putting up these flags on lights and putting this orange gel in front of one of the lights shining through the window of the temple. And to the naked eye, you could clearly see there's a orange um, bit of transparent plastic sheet over the light. And I said to him, sorry to ask a silly question, but aren't you going to see that on camera? And he was like, no, come here. He said, come and look through the camera because of the lens we're using and the focal length. It's soft, so that's going to give a nice, warm, diffuse glow in here. You can't, And I was like, wow, that was the first time I understood lensing. And, and it, all it took was that to think, now I'm going to go buy a book and start learning about, you know, optics and lenses and, you know, focal distance. And why is a 70mm lens the glamour lens that's used? When you see leading ladies in films that's typically a lens size they use because it's most glamorous where you've got that narrow depth of field and it's soft behind them and soft in front of them. And they are just, you know what I mean? All this stuff, it opens up a whole new world of stuff that you hadn't really thought too deeply about. But curtailing this story, so I had done Batman Begins and stuff, and then it was Eureka. So that experience of the Goosebumps, plus a stunt guy telling me, if you love stunts and you love the physicality and you don't want glory or attention, be a stuntman and you'll have a good career and you earn good money and you'll enjoy it. He said, but if you want glory, if you want to be seen and you want to be recognized, be an actor because it will eat you up. Be spending your life being a stuntman, watching other actors act. If deep down you want to be the one on camera doing the thing, right? Right. And it was, I'm really glad because it was just honest. And I was like, if I'm true to myself, I do want it. And when I say glory, it's not in terms of red carpets and money and just frivolous sort of side effects. But in terms of if I do something incredible on film, I want people to know it's me. I don't want to risk my life doing some insane stunt or something. And people not even know it's me and think it's the actor doing it. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, so that was the change. And I remember telling one of my housemates, who's still a friend today, this is what I want to do. I'm, I'm going to be an actor. And his reaction, he was like, what? And I said, yeah. He said, what? You, an actor? And I said, yeah. And he said, what? Like, like Robert De Niro? <laughs> like like a, a proper actor? And I was like, okay, you picked one of the greatest dramatic actors in the world. But, but yeah, and he's like, what makes you think you can just walk into Hollywood and be an actor? You haven't gone to drama school. I was doing a degree in human biology of all things at the time at university. And he couldn't, this is the thing. He couldn't wrap his head around. Where is this guy getting the fucking cojones to, to, to even think he can do this, but it comes back to the treasure chest analogy, you know? Yeah. I had developed that self-belief that I can do this. I have to apply myself very hard, 
but I can do this, and and the rest is history, right? Joy, but how about this? It takes a lot of effing cojones to 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 tell. Like here, you are opening yourself up. You're so happy. You've come to this big moment in your life, and you have a housemate basically shitting all over this beautiful moment you've had. That takes bigger cojones in maybe a more negative way. But I don't know. I feel like the reaction should have been, you know, good for you, man. It's going to be a tough road. But I think you could do it. And instead, he comes out with Robert De Niro, and I don't know. He's he's just destroying your dream that you've just so proudly opened up to. I, boy, that's a tough moment to, to 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 experience. I bet it is tough. But you need you need to be pressure tested like that. Because right. if I was like, shit, you're right. Maybe I'm biting off more than I can shoot. Then the dream, the fire, the fire wasn't burning brightly enough anyway. You know, right. as Arnold says. Trust yourself. Don't listen to the naysayers. <laughs> break, break the rule, but not the law. You know, yeah. like, don't listen to the naysayers. You you almost need that. You need people to challenge you. It's like writing a script. If you if, When you write a script, you should, number one, be very passionate about it and get it to a point that you think, this is f- fucking great. I defy you to not enjoy this. And then you want people to try and... I want you to try and pick flaws on this. Right. I think if you don't welcome criticism and critique, then then your 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 ego is is way too is way too present. I mean, what is ego? Right. It's an interesting and important thing to talk about. It's fear. Any egoic manifestation, jealousy, greed, um, uh, being a, a braggart or arrogant, obnoxious, all of those things are projections of fear. And it's really interesting to sort of meditate on that. No, Someone who, go on. And, and what an amazing moment for you to come to that realization on a Christopher Nolan movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just the, where you came to the decision and how is a beautiful story in itself. I had an actor, she was an interstellar, and she would she was talking about what Chris Nolan is like on set. You know, he's like, no cell phone. She said, he's no cell phones. He's very rigid and very, you know, he, he knows what he wants. But what an amazing way, an amazing moment for you to come to that realization, Joey. Yeah, it's funny where th- from small acorns, right? Right. You know, it's got to, the seed has got to um, germinate somewhere and expand, expand your mind. I mean, look, I that was where it started, but I think the 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 vision expansion continued to grow. And there's a very poignant moment on the Born Ultimatum. So that was my big break. Right. And that was the most mind warping thing you may want to come back to that process first because every actor's big break right is 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 something interesting to hear about but if i just fast forward to getting the call that you've got it you've got the role of desh and tomorrow you're flying to la to train at 8711 for um, you know two weeks fight training and whatever you would think Maybe some people do jump for joy and, and, and scream and shout and holler like you see in the movies, you know. But when I got that call that confirmed it, I remember just hanging up the phone and sitting down. It was actually a very somber moment and it, because I was like... We all have dreams and aspirations in life, but to to, to 
play a major part in an iconic French Hollywood franchise is the stuff of fantasy. It's almost like saying, I want to be a NASA, NASA astronaut and go into space and go on the ISS or land on the moon or whatever. So when that actually happens, you have this weird sort of operating system update <laughs> in your mind, right? Because right. it's like your brain now has to be compatible with software that you believe to be a fantasy that you would chase but never necessarily achieve. But now you've actually achieved this. This is real. And you're only 23. You're a young dude. So now when you look into your future, now what do you see? Well, it's changed the game now. Because if you've already achieved something that was fantastical and nigh on impossible at 23, well, well, well what next? What, what shift happens in your brain? And I remember telling Matt, this so fast forward into having been filming for a couple of months and and me and matt damon he's an amazing guy you know he's someone i have nothing but wonderful things to say um but i, I said i remember we had a discussion i said look matt this is my big break so you can imagine how this feels for me but for you this is your third born movie you are currently forbes magazine's most bankable star in the world in that year, 2006. I'm like, how does it feel for you now? Does it still feel amazing or is it just kind of par for the course now? And he thought about it and he was like, no, it's still amazing. But it evolved and the conversation went on and, and he, cutting, jumping to the sort of the, 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 the punchline, the finale, he was like, him and Don Cheadle were playing golf one time. And they had asked, they got into a conversation about how does it change once you've had, got, had your big break and you've hashtag made it, what changes? And they had a discussion, they came to the conclusion, it is a very succinct uh, proverb. Before you have your big break, your dreams have a ceiling limit. You can see a solid out of reach goal, right? But once you achieve your big break, suddenly your dreams have no limit. So it almost it's like Neo. It's like Mr. Anderson believing he is the one. Once he becomes the one, he can see the very fabric of the Matrix. It's like you can see the code of your destiny. And now you have the ability to start manipulating it to to forge a life that you want to forge that is by your design, if that makes sense. Mm. And that was very profound. It's like, yeah, before you make it, you, you, there's a limit. There's something out of touch, but you can see it. But then after you make it, you're like, well, well, fuck, I can probably do anything I can turn. I turn my mind to, it may take 10 years to achieve it, but I can probably do it. So it gives you this kind of, inhuman self-belief that others on the outside may perceive as you're deluded, you're arrogant, you're delusional, whatever. If your fantasy, you can do this. And as a filmmaker, like the street fighter thinking I'm going to take on the studios and as a first time feature filmmaker, independently raise $3 million and write, direct, star in, choreograph a thing. You would think I'm nuts. Right. It sounds nuts me saying it to you now. I almost feel pissed off 
at the at the arrogance of the person who would think to do that. Right. <laughs> but but I was that person right. and I did it right. And and you pull it off. So it's it's yeah, we've kind of come full circle. It's you 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 compound achievements and self-belief and discipline and you understand the price these things come at a price you know you have to sacrifice i spent all of my 20s forging my career not going out and having fun in clubs and bars and just fucking about so much i was kind of very much like let me dedicate my late teens and 20s to getting my career going then hopefully by the time i'm 40 I can be having a real chill life, you know? Right, right. And, and, and what you didn't mention, and obviously because you're not this guy, but with people listening, for those of you listening, um, one of the things that's so special about the senior in the Bourne Ultimatum is that many consider the fight scene between Bourne and Desh one of the best of all time. I think I went to four or five different sites. I think it's top five to ten in most, which is unbelievable. And it's, I mean, it's an mm. amazing scene. But for you to kind of have... Not only a role, uh, you know. You said it to, to Matt. You know, this is my this is my shot here. But you just kind of what you did with that opportunity is another conversation in itself. I mean, that's pretty mm. amazing to do to have a scene like that. That's a pretty powerful first impression, I'd say, Joe. Oh, for sure, especially in the. I had no, I mean, sometimes, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the stars align and it's, it's a gift and a curse because as my big break getting Desh, this was like a role that I just felt once I got it, I felt like no one else can play this character, but me, this, this character. And what was really cool is Paul Greengrass, when he casts someone, he believes they're the part and he's quite hands off. He doesn't tell you what he wants at all. He'll just tell you that if he doesn't like something you're doing. But even the costume, I got to completely craft the jacket Desh wears, the trousers, the shoes, even the gun, the specific handgun, a choice out of 10 pistols. Wow. Got to completely create the character down to his detail, the hair, the look, everything. And that, is really nice when you can put that personal stamp on a character um, and, and just own it. Sometimes you land a role and of course you always try and do your best, but you, you, you don't necessarily feel like it's Cinderella's slipper that perfectly, perfectly fits your foot, you know? Right. There's sometimes a bit of wriggle room in there. Um, and that could be for any number of reasons. And so there's that in, in getting a character that you just feel an affinity to and you, you understand the character. But then also it was a great movie. And this is something I've been chatting with people recently. It's so rare for a movie to be truly great, as in it enters that rarefied air in cinematic history. It becomes a pillar of, of, of the cinematic story that if aliens visited earth and they wanted to understand what is cinema, the born ultimatum would be one of those films that is best in class for action thriller genre. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and you could, you can go a decade or more. You could go two, three decades before you get in a film like that. Again, you may never be in a film like that again. Linda Hamilton 
will never be in in a film as good as Terminator 2 again. Right. You know, Sigourney, and it's it's quite sad, actually, when sometimes a young actor, you're like, they peaked, it will never get that good again. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a l- yeah. Over some actors' careers, and they've had, they're still working, and they're doing films, they're wealthy, and they've still got a fan base, but you look back, and you're like, I was, we were talking about Morgan Freeman again, and I thought, since Shawshank, he's had some, you know, films like Glory and um, and we were going through what his most iconic roles, but it will never quite reach that summit of Everest perfection that Shawshank and maybe Driving Miss Davies. There were maybe like three films that were quite early in his career, right? And it's a slow downhill from there. You know, right. and it's strange. You know, even actors with long careers. That's why Tom Cruise is such a phenomenon. The fact that he's still making movies now, and that he could churn out something as epic as Mission Impossible Fallout that I was in, that was an incredible experience. That the sixth movie in a franchise ends up being one of the very best of the franchise, right? Right. And um, yeah. It's it's, and it's impressive. Yeah, and it's funny you bring up Cruz because I know we were talking earlier about Jackie Chan, but I feel like Tom Cruise has that – like he could easily give a successful performance at half the level he goes at. But I mean he is so far over the top in wanting to put a quality product out there. I feel like there's nothing he wouldn't do for a movie. And I almost think that's a, such an impressive attitude to have. Mm, you know? Yeah, he, he is he is 100% about talk about value for money right when you go and buy a ticket to see a tom cruise film you know he's giving 110 percent. he's never phoning it in he's never going through the motions Mm. and he really wants the film to be the best it can be he's he's passionate and, and and he's passionate about other characters in the film, aside from himself. I mean, look, he is the star. He is the sun in the solar system of whatever movie he's on. But he cares about the other planets, and he'll get upset, you know. He'll spend, you know you know what I mean? It's, pa- it's passion. It comes down to passion. And when a filmmaker or the star is passionate, that often comes through in the end product, and the audience feels something. They feels this energy that you can't put your finger on, but you're like, this is moving me because this guy is on the edge. Like, Cruz pushes it to the limit. Push it to the limit. Um, and, and, and um, yeah, there's not many people that, 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 that do that, do they? No. And, and before I let you go, I did want to ask you about, you know, the amazing old, the old guard. But did, did it occur? To, and I mentioned the underrated Snow White and, and the Huntsman. Did, did Have you actually, did, I mean, I, maybe it's just, just a pure coincidence, but it is your second time working or being in the same cast as Charlize Theron. Was that, yes. is that just a complete yeah. like coincidence or like, do you guys both realize that? Or is that, I know not everyone sees everybody in the cast because you're filming different days, different roles. Um, but it's kind of an interesting coincidence. 
yeah, we we actually never crossed paths on Snow White because we, although ironically, my character is working for her by proxy of her brother, um, this character played by Sam Spruill. We never, we were never in the same space because all of of the Queen's scenes are confined to the the castle. You know, she's in that sort of you know castle chamber with a mirror, right? She, I don't remember her coming out of that really. Or if she does, there's maybe a section in a garden where she bursts and turns into birds or something, but. but right. Yeah, but when when I first met her on the old guard, I, I, I said to her, I was like, hey, Charlie, you know, we, we sort of you know, had the introduction. I was like, we worked together on Snow White. You know, we didn't actually meet, but blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so that was something that, um, that uh, we brought up. And it's, it's funny, again, as, as, a, as a regarding old guard, the very first scene... I shot in that, which again, I believe, yeah, so the first scene I shot was the scene where she's been double-crossed. Booker shoots her, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, so don't listen on if you you don't want to be spoiled for the old guy. Right. Um, But for those of you that have seen it, she gets double-crossed in Copley. We're in Chiwetel's house. And um, she gets shot in the back and you realise she's not healing. And you remember Merrick and me and a bunch of, you know, soldiers enter the flat and I we take them away. So I have to sort of straddle and pin Charlie's down by the throat and inject her in the neck with a sedative that knocks her out. And then follow suit with uh, Booker, played by Matthias Schoenarts. And then we, we, we take them out of there. So it's very odd getting to know, working with an A-lister, a real powerhouse actress who you respect and who is, you know, is, is very impressive. Charlize is just, she's impressive on screen and she's impressive off screen, you know. For my money, real- Joey, she's top She's top five for my money. Like, male or female, she's in the Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, whomever else you want to have a conversation. For my yeah. money, I think. You know, yeah, she, she's and she, it's just the power. Sometimes you meet someone, you're like, wow, she gives, she radiates a very strong charisma, and and just she's just a powerful woman, right. you know. Um, she's tall, she commands respect. She's tall, but she glides through the place, and she has one of those thousand yard stairs that. When she locks eyes with you, it's almost like, oh, you almost feel like a White Walker in in Game of Thrones looking at you. You're like, oh, shit, you're staring into my soul type thing. Um, But it's very odd getting to know someone in this very sort of physical, visceral, intimate thing. You're you're wrestling them to the floor and straddling them and having to sort of grab them by the throat and stuff. And you're like, I barely had a conversation with you. And we're doing this scene for like a week or something. You know? <laughs> like this is how I'm getting acquainted. It's those are just that's just one of the many head scratching, funny things about filmmaking that you come home that night and you're like, oh shit, that just happened. And the funny I thing, Chuck, and, yeah, and, and you would know this, Joey, too. I mean, there's certain people, like obviously people like me would not know, but you would. Like Matt Damon and Charlize Theron seem like just wonderful people away from the camera. Like 
there's some actors you know when the camera turns off they're not very pleasant people they are almost the opposite of that they are just su- they strike me as such kind people yeah and i think they're balanced like you were saying before like life experience i think you can very much tell when an actor has a fulfilling life filled with a variety of things outside of the movie business i.e the hype and the ego of being a movie star is not their number one interest. I think when they're a balanced, well-rounded, intelligent human being, they have passion and interest and purpose outside of the movie game. And if they're like that, then they're going to be interesting, dynamic, nice, balanced people off camera, behind the scenes, right? Right. Whereas there are probably some stars that are all about being a star. That's all they live for is, is the power and the adoration, you know, and at, the, at times fear. Because make no mistake, on some film sets, there is a real climate of fear. As if, as if you're hanging out with Pablo Escobar. Everyone may be laughing and joking, but you realize I'm in the presence of someone who is very powerful and if so, they can snap their fingers and people can be told, don't come back here tomorrow, you know? Wow, yeah, yeah, that's a... And that, that's something people don't realise, the kind of, like, mob boss kind of aura that some stars can radiate is quite interesting. Yeah, and, and I have to say, the movie itself works on so many levels. And, and just a side note, uh, Chiwetel should have won an Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave. It, it, it maybe is one of a, the top 10 most powerful performances I've ever seen. But he, he, he did win an Academy. He won the Oscar for it. No, he lost to... Um, did he? Yes, to Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. M- McConaughey. So, but why do I believe that Chiwetel has an Oscar? Have I just made that up and been living that lie? No, he should have won that award. He, sh- I mean, don't get me wrong. Dallas Buyers Club was wonderful. And Matthew McConaughey's a phenomenal actor, but I feel like every, I feel like that man poured his soul into that movie. And I don't know. I, I, I get sidetracked easily, but I just, I don't know. When, when I see a cast like this, um, it's just so it works on so many levels. Were you pleased with the final product, Joey? Were you were you happy with the old guard and the way it came out? I think the old guard. Look, it's a great, entertaining um, popcorn film in terms of pace. And look, the, this is the funny thing with the old guard. It's got one of the coolest premise premises that you can come in terms of what the cogs in your brain of your imagination moving forward you're like wow it invokes interview with a vampire mm. and the crow and, and narratively those ingredients and you're like geez there are so many ways this film can go i mean case in point take the flashback with booker where he's by the campfire explaining to niles character played by kiki lane about how he had three sons and the youngest of them died when they were 45 of cancer. And when, when your family become aware that you have this gift, this immortality, first they're amazed, but they start to become jealous. And then you're made into a pariah because they believe you're not sharing, you're being selfish and you're not sharing this gift with them. 
And that whole story of having to suffer outliving his kids and them turning on him because he couldn't help them, he couldn't save their ailing lives with this gift that he can't control. I thought that is a two-hour movie in itself. Right. Just, just that story right there. So the film is filled with these kind of, like, you know, they utter a line about uh, Charlize's character, Andy, being the lover and muse of Rodin, you know, the artist and stuff. And you're like, God, each of these little things that are just throwaway things are entire movies, you know. And so the film is so rich. It's so it's a great film because it really makes you think, doesn't it? And you're like, and it's such an interesting point that you say that because it reminds me of the children's book, and I think it's a movie, Tuck Everlasting, where they bring up, you know, maybe living forever. It's not everything. It's you know, thought right. to be right because yeah. you lose people you love. It's almost like Tom Hanks in the Green Mile too, right? He's outliving everybody. He's, he's 110 years old, and yeah, while immortality and living seems great, I mean, you could even make the Steve Rogers comparison to why he went back to Peggy. But I guess that's a yeah. cover. But like, it does have its drawbacks, and I really love the way the old guard kind of touched upon that a little bit. It does. That's what. It, that's its USP. Is the is the toll. And psychologically, I mean, Charlize's character being the oldest, obviously is suffering from it. Mo it's interesting that the two suffering it from it the most are the oldest and before Niall comes along, the youngest. So Booker is a Frenchman from the N Napoleonic Wars. So he's about 200 years old. So he's been immortal just long enough to, to have outlived everyone he's known. So he is suffering way more than the, than the couple of Joe and Nikki, played by Marwin Kanzari and Luca Marinelli, who are from the Crusades, who are about a thousand years old. Right. And then Charlize is like four thousand years old. So it's really interesting that at the two ends of the spectrum, you have the greatest suffering. And the mysterious, in the mysterious way, Joey, that when they just cease to like, you know, I almost feel like they get, they get a certain amount of of healing, you know, where. They just stop living, and I thought that was a very powerful point too. Um, from from a um, other standpoint, where we find out that they really are immortal, the scene where the, there's a shootout and they're shot, and you think, "Oh, this is really early to see this," and you start to figure out who and what they are. It reminded mm. me very much of the scene. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, Equilibrium, with Christian Bale. I love that sense offender. Yes, yes. So there's a stop scene in that movie sense offender. Yeah. <laughs> where he where he shoots these people in the dark. It's one of the best action scenes I've ever seen, but it reminded me a little bit of that. Like, I feel like when you, it's a great way to find out that these people are immortal. Definitely. Yeah. It's a cool opening. And I think for people that went into that film, not knowing anything about it, they're like, holy shit. What the? <laughs> you know, I've seen some reviews where people were like completely caught off guard by that. Um, I think it's cool. And it's, it's very, it's very, cool to be part of a landmark film not only is it cool it's the number one film on netflix at the moment globally as far as i'm aware um but it's a landmark film in that for several reasons as you know it's the first time a uh, woman of color has been has been given a studio-sized action blockbuster to direct and Gina Prince-Bythewood 
is in the director's chair for this film. Yep. So that's my that's my first time in my whole at least feature film career working for a female director who passed on a Marvel movie to make it more impressive because she believed yeah. in this project, which is amazing. Like what what what, what is, I think this has potential to really pick up some steam, Joey, as far as maybe a couple movies out of this. I think we could make this count, you know. Yeah, it's clearly been left um for more, I mean, my only regret with the film, I enjoyed it, is that almost it wasn't longer or wasn't a series because there's so much in it. You think this, the story in just this film, you could probably s- spread out over series one of a series just to develop more of the characters. I want to see Joe and Nikki's backstory in the Crusades. I want to see them fighting to the last man. All the other troops have died and day turns to night, turns to day and they fight till they're exhausted and one of them gets slain and the other collapses with exhaustion and then the slain one reanimates and then it goes on again until they're like, we're running out of food and water. We've got to leave this place and, and they end up going off together because they're the only people and it being a cold freezing night and them cuddling up together just to stay warm and seeing how being nemeses trying to kill each other, how a love and a, and a, and a amorous relationship can develop out of that. Imagine just that on its own seeing it. So my greatest regret is that there wasn't more time to see more and develop uh, Chiwetel's character, Copley, the kind of villain trifecta of Merrick, played by Harry Melling, myself playing Keen and Chiwetel playing Copley. There's, you can tell watching it, you're like, God, I'm sure there's more underneath somewhere there. But because there's so much to fit into one film, of course, you've got to focus on the key thrust, antagonist thrust, or the, the key protagonist thrust. But yeah, that's that's my only crit. There's some great action in the film, female, especially as a female-led action film. You know, right? There's some great action. There's some great team action as well. Seeing the team, that's some of the coolest stuff when you're seeing the whole unit moving and working together, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's so much you you want to know more about, right? You'd like to see some scenes from the Crusades or see, you know. Um, you know what she did in the Civil War. There's a there's a lot there to be uncovered. You're so right with that. Yeah. So it, the only it's a gift and a curse when a premise is that has that much promise. Right. You, you, part of you is always going to be left unsatisfied somewhere because you're presented with so much. Whereas a lot of films, the promise is a lot less. So the film doesn't have to work so hard to tick a box and say, "Cool, okay, it did what it said on the tin." you know right right but when a film is like wow but then that's what gives this such strong franchise potential because there is a desire i think for most people that watched it it's like i want to see more i want to see the other areas of this story that have been expanded and quinn um played by veronica ngo her character being in the iron maiden at the bottom of the ocean i mean that's one of the most horrific concepts that people do presented with for a long time yes um so yeah seeing her character's return is she gonna be a villain in the next film are her and booker gonna team up to go against the old guard 
Yeah, that's Who such knows? a yeah, that's so well said, man. You have given me an hour and a half of your time, and I know it's late where you are. I, Joey, I can't thank you enough, man. I just lo- it was like talking to a friend. I just have we have so much in common as far as our movies and what we like. Uh, it was just so much fun talking to you tonight. Completely, look anytime, man. I I, I love speaking to impassioned people, and um, and it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast. And uh, yeah, anytime.
Thank you.